Let's turn to our Bible, 2 Kings chapter number 2 this evening. 2 Kings chapter number 2, what a blessing to be in the house of God. And uh, I've got to hurry tonight because there's food afterwards, amen. So I've got to hurry. Somebody say amen to that. Well, I appreciate how spiritual y'all are, amen. Second, <laughs> that's where you was a second ago. He's over there. Yeah, that's right. He's over there eating, eating them little chicken salad sandwiches, amen. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Amen, that's right. Second Kings chapter number 2, and I'd like to read just a few verses to you this evening and preach to you on a little thought that God laid on my heart. I trust He'll use in your heart as well. Second Kings chapter number 2, uh, we're reading about a, a an event that takes place in a uh, location, a city, by the name of Jericho. And the Bible says in verse 19, The men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee. The situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise, and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of the waters, and cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. Let's stop there and pray. Father, I love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you that as we gather around your word, we can do so in confidence. Lord, help us to have our lives in submission to it tonight. Help us to view it as an authority and as uh, the very uh, words of God in speaking to our life. And I pray that as we accept your word and the truth of it tonight, you'd be able to change us and make us more like Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we're trusting you in this process to you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, this event, this miracle that takes place, takes place in a location, a place called Jericho. I don't know about you, but when I hear the name Jericho, there's immediately a hundred things that light off in my mind. Jericho is one of those storied places in the Bible. In fact, if we were to make a list of the top ten, maybe even the top five uh, places that are named the most in the Bible, Jericho would be up there with them. Jerusalem is named, especially if you take into account all of its various iterations of names, almost 800 times in the Bible. You'll find that Samaria is mentioned uh, over 160 times. You'll find even places like Bethel uh, are mentioned quite Quite a few times, and Jericho is mentioned 59 times in your Bible by name. It was a famous place. It was a storied place. We cannot uh, think about Jericho without thinking about the great miracles that God did there. But here in Elisha's day, the city of Jericho has been rebuilt, by the way, in defiance to the command of God. And Elisha is lodging. He's tarrying there for a few days. God has just taken Elijah home to heaven, and Elisha has assumed the mantle of the old prophet, and he is waiting at Jericho because the school of the prophets that was near there had asked him to wait while they went and searched for Elijah. And so Elisha has agreed to wait in that place, and for three days he waits there waiting on these young men to return. And while he's there... The Bible says in verse 19, The men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant. In other words, everything looks good. We've got everything that we need. We've got everything to succeed and to thrive that you could ask for. 
But they say this, the water is not and the ground barren. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. The situation is pleasant, but the waters are barren. What they were fundamentally decrying in verse 19 is that there was a breakdown between how things ought to be and how they actually were. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but my guess is if you've been saved any amount of time and you've walked with God and lived for the Lord, you've probably had some times in your life when you knew everything was going according to God's plan and you had every reason to rejoice in the Lord. You had every reason to be thriving in the walk that you have with God. The situation was pleasant, but still there was something missing and something wrong in your life. You've probably had moments where you had no reason to have sorrow, but you had sorrow times when everything was situated such that God should be blessing your life, but rather than blessing the uh, blessedness, you found barrenness. In other words, the situation, everything was right. There's nothing you'd point to and say this is wrong, and yet everything seemed wrong. And here in the city of Jericho, we find that they have everything they need for them to succeed as a city, and yet they have nothing but barrenness and death. I want you to notice three thoughts with me. Now, I want to, by the Lord's help, apply this to your life and to mine. I hope maybe we can do that as we move a little closer into it. Think with me for a moment, number one tonight, about the history of this place. As we said a moment ago, that that Jericho, that very name, evokes certain memories and stories throughout the Word of God. The predominant one being, of course, in Joshua chapter number 6 when Jericho is conquered. But there's a reason that they went to Jericho first when they came in the land of Canaan. Jericho was one of the premier cities of the plain there. It was not just a great military foe, but likewise it was also a great uh, strategic prize. And I would say this, when we study our Bible, we learn about Jericho, that Jericho was a coveted city. Hey, you don't build walls that big unless folks are trying to get in. You don't build walls that big unless folks want what you've got. And certainly Jericho is a place where they built these these massive and thick walls because people would want to come in and take possession of that land. It was a coveted city. Now, why is that? What was so great about the city of Jericho that warranted this paranoia and this uh, measure of safety? Well, when we study our Bible, we sort of learn two things just in the opening passages that hint at what Jericho was. We learn, number one, that it was a beautiful place. Really what uh, the men mean when they say this, the situation of this city is pleasant. And then they say this, as my Lord seeth. In other words, they said, here we are situated in this idyllic valley. And we have everything at our disposal that you would think that we would need. And we are a coveted, sought-after place. Everything should be right, and yet everything is wrong. And when we read in our Bible, we find that Jericho was an exceedingly attractive and beautiful city, uh, nestled as it was in the natural landscape of the valley of Jericho. I don't know if you realize this, but it was actually Jericho uh, was one of the places that Moses viewed when God showed him the promised land. When God wants to show Moses what the last 40 years have been about, when He wants to show Moses what it is that He has for His people, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 34, verse 1, Moses went up from the plains of Moab under the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pisgah that is over against Jericho. 
And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah unto the utmost sea in the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees unto Zoar. When God wanted to show an example of the beauty of Canaan, he pointed to Jericho as an example of that. Can I tell you this? Hey, a life that God has redeemed unto himself is a beautiful thing. God designed our life, and I understand it's touched with sorrow, and I understand sometimes it's messy. When we preach this morning about what to do with our mistakes and the guilt and shame of them, I'm keenly aware that there's not a life in here lived for Christ that won't have scars, uh, some of them battle scars, and some of them scars from bumbling around and making mistakes. But I'll tell you this, God has a beautiful life in store for you if you'll live for Him. It was a beautiful place. Not only that, it was a bountiful place. The Bible describes it as the city of palm trees. Tells us it was situated in the valley of Jericho, a lush and fertile valley. Can I say to you, hey, the will of God is that our life be a bountiful life. I don't mean abundant with riches. I don't mean abundant with men's praise and accolades. But I would say this, that God's desire for our life is not that we live in deadness and in dryness, but that we thrive and that we we live a life that glorifies God through the abundance of His glory in it and through the effectiveness of His working through it. Jericho, one of the reasons, and by the way, we'll talk about this in a moment, but God prohibits Jericho from being rebuilt after it's destroyed. The reason for that is because it looked like the kind of place you'd want a city. I mean, everything around it was thriving. And it would be really easy to look at it and think with the proper irrigation, with the proper working of the soil, with the proper investment, this place could once again be an economic powerhouse. There's no reason why they wouldn't think that because in its ancient days, Jericho had been a valuable place. Hey, listen, the Bible describes uh, that God had consecrated the spoil of Jericho unto himself. Why did he have to do that? Because there was plenty of spoil in Jericho. Achan, when he uh, robs from God there in Jericho, he takes a wedge of silver and of gold and a Babylonish garment. That's enough right there to tell you that this was a hub of trade and of commerce. The common person having those sorts of riches within their tent. I would say this, that, that Jericho, it was a coveted city. It was beautiful and it was bountiful. And it sort of reminds me of the life that God has in mind and desires for mankind. But we find that Jericho is not that whenever the people find it later on. Why is that? What happened that caused this? Well, we learn that not only was it a coveted city, but when we read our Bibles, we learn it was a conquered city. And can I say this, that in your life and in mine, uh, certainly the beauty that God has designed and desired for mankind has been conquered by sin and its effects in our lives. God designed mankind living in innocence in the Garden of Eden. And boy, you talk about a state of perfection. That everything they needed right at their disposal, at their fingertips, they were walking in fellowship and in accord with God, but then sin conquered and dominated them. As a result, they fell. And because of that fall, now there was a problem between them and God. And sin ravaged their life and sin destroyed their life. And where there had been beauty, there was all of the sudden burden and barrenness. So likewise, Jericho was a conquered city. In Joshua chapter 6, God throws down the walls of that city and he doesn't spare anyone in it alive except for Rahab the harlot and for her family. 
Everything else is put to the sword. Everything else is left lying in waste. And what once was a beautiful city because of their defiance against God has been ravaged and left in ruin. It was not only a coveted city and a conquered city, but we learn at the close of that passage that it was a cursed city. The Bible says in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, that this is what Joshua pronounces to the people. He says, the city shall be a curse, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble. In other words, this place was cursed, pronounced cursed by God. We often, I think, associate the idea with blessing and cursing in the Bible with a sort of neo-pagan concept of just some intrinsic darkness that exists within something. But something is cursed when God pronounces it to be cursed. Even if it bears no outward vestiges of, of, of anything negative or dark, if God declares something to be cursed, it is cursed. So likewise, if God proclaims it to be blessed, it's blessed. Reality will catch up with God's words, amen, because He's God. But it is God that declares things to be what they are. And we find that though Jericho, uh, even up to and including this moment when Joshua gives this declaration, it is a beautiful and bountiful place. It has everything available and, and all that you would think it would need. And yet even in that beauty, And even in that strength, God says it is cursed and it will fall because of that. In other words, I would say this, that when we read about Jericho, we learn that it was cursed in its fall. And it's a reminder to me of mankind who likewise is cursed in the fall. Can I tell you this, and you and I can never refrain from committing sin on a broad level. We will all sin, I don't care who you are. But can I say, even if a man found a way to live sinlessly, it still wouldn't address the sin that's in his nature. We are not just sinners by actions, although we are that very thing. But we are, before we're ever that, we are sinners by nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's who and what we are. Well, how did we get that way? We got that way in a great fall that took place in Genesis 3. And so here we have mankind, and you look at his life, and he's marred in his beauty, and he's stunted in his bounty. You see him designed to be a certain thing, desired to be a certain thing of God. But because of iniquity, because of defiance, God overthrows him and pronounces a curse upon him. That's not a picture of mankind in our natural state. I don't know what is. See, the fact is, we were the same way, designed by God to be in beauty and strength, to be for His glory and for His honor. But because our rejection of Him, sin ravaged us, made God the enemy of man and man the enemy of God. And through that, we were overthrown in that beauty. Jericho, it was cursed in its fall. But we learn a few verses down in Joshua chapter 6, it wasn't just cursed in its fall, it was also cursed in its foundation. The Bible says in Joshua 6.26, Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city, Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. 
In other words, it wasn't just cursed and God overthrew it in that curse. But God declares that any attempt to build on its foundation is going to likewise produce a curse in a person's life. Makes you think about what Paul says about him. If, if he were to return to Judaism, he would be building a th- again the things which he had destroyed and be made a transgressor. Well, God says if you go back to Jericho and try to rebuild it, you'll be doing it in defiance of me. You know, that's exactly what happened. The reason when we come to Second Kings chapter 2 that there's a Jericho that is barren is because there's a Jericho that was built. And the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua the son of Nun. So a person living in Jericho at the time when Joshua's army rolled up could proclaim, it's not my fault. I was born into this city. I was born into this place. I've done nothing to try to incur this wrath. To that, God would say, but you were born in a cursed place. But with Hiel, the Bethelite, he could not proclaim that he was just born in this place For he had gone back and by his actions tried to build again the foundations of this cursed place. In other words, it being cursed in its fall is a reminder of sin in our nature. But it being cursed in its foundations is a reminder of sin in our defiance of God. It's funny because there'd be people that would say, well, preacher, what if I were to live perfectly? Would I then need a savior? And the initial answer is always uh, even if you did live perfectly, you'd still need a Savior for you have a sin nature. The second answer should be, but oh, by the way, you can't live perfectly. <laughs> Think about the hubris and, and arrogance it takes to presume that we could even attain to that level. And the reality is, you say, preacher, are we sinners by our actions or are we sinners in our nature? Well, we are first sinners in our nature, but by extension of that, you better believe we're sinners by our actions. We all commit sin. And if a man say that he hath no sin, he lies and does not the truth. So here we have this picture, this history of this city. It's established in beauty and in bounty. But because of its defiance against God, it is conquered. It is overthrown. It is cursed in its fall. It is cursed in its foundations. And now we have these men in 2 Kings chapter 2 who have gone and they're trying to build a city on broken foundations without ever addressing the curse that is intrinsically there. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, there's about three or four sermons I could preach here. And a little time and attention could be given to the idea of a person seeking through religion to be made right with God. And I will tell you this, no amount of baptism, no amount of religion, no amount of church going, no amount of charitable giving, can never do anything to address the curse of the fall and the curse in our foundations. But what I have in mind to preach to you tonight really doesn't apply in that respect. really has to do with the life of the believer, who though he has everything that he should need to live and thrive for God, is nevertheless living a barren and bitter life because he's seeking to do so in the energies of the flesh and of self-reliance. 
I think that in my life, and I'm sure it's true in yours as well, a great many times when there's been an inexplicable sorrow and deadness in my life, if I'll just go back and reassess and look with honest eyes, I'd have to admit that every time that's been the case, it's been because I was trying to do this thing without God and without His strength. I was trying to do it in my own energy and in my own ability, and I felt uh, confused to look at a life where I should be happy. I should have peace. I should have joy. I should be doing something for God. The situation is pleasant. But every time I went to take a drink of the waters of that life, I found bitterness and barrenness. You see, we study this passage and we we do so in mind having the history of this place. But I want you to notice for a moment tonight the tragedy of this place. The tragedy is that having all that it needed, it still was not what it should have been. And I will tell you that in our lives, though none of us live perfectly, and though none of us are, are perfect or have already attained, we must all follow after. I would say that the greatest tragedy for your life and mine would be that having so equipped us to be used of God, that we'd find ourselves not used of Him at all. You see, it wasn't that they were in a dry desert land where nobody would expect to find water. When you looked around, there were palm trees that were growing. Hey, by the way, that's one of the trees that a Christian is likened unto, as well as an olive tree and a cedar tree. The believer is likened to a palm tree, which drives its roots deep and which gets its water from deep pools and deep wells. There were other things growing. But they couldn't grow anything of profit. What do they mean when they say this? Whenever in verse 21, Elisha heals the land and the waters, listen how he describes their problem. He says at the end of verse 21, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. The idea behind this passage, not just simply being that things were not growing, but that the creatures that partook of the water of that land were finding barrenness to all of a sudden be a sudden affliction in their life. What was uh, at play? What was present at the city of Jericho? And what was such a tragedy? Well, I would say this, number one, the distress they felt was a great tragedy. They should have been enjoying life, but instead they were joyless in their life. Can I tell you, in our life, It's a great tragedy when not even Christians can enjoy life. We're on the winning side, man. I mean, we've got everything we need. I understand we all have bad days, and I understand we all have bad weeks and months and years and decades. But we ought to be able at some part of this sojourn to enjoy what God has done in our lives and is doing through our lives. One of the great tragedies in this passage is that having everything that you would think they would need, they were living a joyous life in Jericho because they were not growing and being used for the Lord. I think their distress was a great tragedy. But then I would say this, not just their distress, but the dryness of the place was a great tragedy. It's interesting the way that they describe it in verse 19. They say the water is not and the ground barren. Now, there's sort of two ways that you could take that phrase, the water is not, the water is nothing. You could take that as being a description of the quantity of the water. There's no water in this place. 
Or you could view it as a description of the quality of the water. The water, such as it is, is of nothing. It is no use to us. When we come to Joshua's description, he says it is a barren land. Now, Jericho was a valley. It's interesting because one of the borders of the land of the valley of Jericho was actually the Jordan River. And you would think, and I understand that the Jordan River, uh, we think of it as this beautiful place. If you actually ever see it, it's a pretty foul and polluted river. It's a muddy mess, the Jordan River is. It's not the kind of river that you'd want to drink out of. And so whether they had no water or the water they had was of no account, it all equals the same thing, which is that they were living not just a joyless life, but hear me, a lifeless life. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, though there was water around, that water could not do anything to give them life. Water is so fundamental to the human existence. It's almost, and certainly in the Bible, it is at times synonymous with the idea of life. You don't have water, man, you just don't have life. You won't live long without water. Water is not just a nice addition to the human condition. It is an essential ingredient for this uh, heart to keep pumping and for these lungs to keep breathing. You must have water and you must have it quick. And where there is no water, there is no life. You know, the sad truth is, and, and they describe this uh, in their life, they say uh, Joshua makes it, or I'm sorry, I keep saying uh, Joshua, Elisha makes this statement. He says there shall not be from thence any more death. The implication being that even the women and, and, and their livestock were casting their young when they would drink of the water of this place. It was bringing barrenness into their life in a deep and meaningful way. What a tragedy it would be after God did everything to give us life if we were too stubborn and self-willed to walk in the strength of that life. You understand that what Christ did for us is not about death. It's about life. I think one of the things that we miss today, and you know, when you read the book of Acts, and just read it like it's a history, because that's what it is, you'll find that there was a greater emphasis placed on the resurrection of Christ than I think most people place on it today. People talk at great lengths about the death of Christ, its substitutionary nature and its propitiatory effect, and, and I think that's good. I think we need to make abundantly clear that Christ died for sinners for lost people. He died in their stead, not just for their benefit, but He died in their stead. But you know, all of that is of no benefit without the resurrection. And actually, the key truth of the gospel is not just that He was born, not just that He lived, not just that He died, and not just that He was buried, but that He rose again the third day. When Paul recounts the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, it is as a doorstep or a doorway into a great discourse on the resurrection. And this thing is not just about getting you to die to self. It's about getting you to live unto God. And I will tell you that if all the gospel has done in your life is convinced you what a scoundrel you are, without transcending you beyond that to cause you to live in victory in the life of Jesus Christ, then you've missed what the gospel's all about. It's not just to get you to admit the deadness of the water, but it's to get you to drink of different water and of living water. I would say the great tragedy of this place is a joyless life and a lifeless life, but then I would say not just the distress and the dryness, but the death that was present there. 
We said this a moment ago. What seems to be suggested by the text is not merely that in absence of water, they were thirsting to death. But actually that in consuming the water of that place, in it being polluted and and it being corrupted, that it was actually causing the women to lose their young, causing the livestock to lose their young, that when they would try to grow things in that ground, it would cast its fruit before time. That in fact, every potential for fruit in that place was being cut off and was being snuffed out. You know, what a tragedy it is in our life Though God, having given us all He has, that we would live a joyless life, that we would live a lifeless life, but what a tragedy it'd be for us to live a fruitless life. It is the natural order of believers to produce fruit in their life. I think there can be an application there to the winning of people to Christ, and there's nothing more natural than that Christians would see other people made Christians. But I would also say that the vast majority of the time that fruit is described in the Bible it's talked about as the, as the expression of the life of the Holy Ghost in us. The Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. Where the Spirit of God is, He will bear witness and testimony in those ways as described in the New Testament. And I would say this, what a tragedy it is for us to have to go to our grave with people trying to do a forensic investigation of our life to find out whether our Christianity was legitimate. How often does that happen? I preached a a, a funeral on Friday and we didn't have to wonder about this precious lady. There was no question she's saved. But I can't tell you the times that I've buried people and I've had families come up to me and say, well, preacher, I think they were saved. I hope they were saved. They said one time and I'm trusting that. I'm not in any way being cynical. I'll tell you this, if there's any evidence at all, thin as it may be after they're gone, you might as well rest in that. Because, hey, as Job says, wherever a tree falls, that's where it'll lie. And when a person dies, they die and stay in whatever state that they died in. If they're unrighteous, let them be unrighteous still. And if they're righteous, let them be righteous still. It's not going to change afterwards. Your prayers, your payments to some priest ain't going to change their situation. And so cling to that hope. But what a great tragedy it would be for us to end our life, people saying, uh, yeah, that's my neighbor. I think he might have been a church-going man. What a tragedy that would be. You know, I worked with him. I think he might have been religious. Sometimes, occasionally, he'd say things. What a great tragedy that people would not be able to see the fruit of the life of God within us. One of the earmarks of a life lived in the energy of the flesh is it bears no glory to God. Because the flesh will never yield glory to anyone least of all to God. One of the great earmarks of a life lived in spiritual energy is that it is consumed with the purpose of rendering to God glory. You know, the Holy Spirit, now this is something the charismatics miss this. The charismatic movement is centered on the emphasis of the Holy Spirit. But to do so is to go in direct contradiction of what Jesus said the Holy Spirit's purpose would be in the first place. Christ said of the Comforter, which is the Spirit of God, said He'll not speak of Himself, but He'll speak of Me. He'll testify of Me. Any movement, whatever label may be ascribed to it that puts a greater emphasis on the Holy Ghost uh, than it does on Jesus Christ hadn't got the Holy Ghost within a hundred miles of it. Because the Holy Ghost will always put the emphasis on Jesus Christ. What a great tragedy it would be for us to live our lives 
never yielding glory to God. You say, preacher, I want the Spirit of God to work in my life. Well, one of his great focuses is going to be to yield glory to God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Our lives, man, what a tragedy to have God having given us everything that we would live a joyless, lifeless, fruitless life. The situation was pleasant, but the waters were barren. I see the history of this place and the tragedy of this place. But in closing, I want you to notice the remedy for this place. I'm glad there's a remedy. I'm glad there's a solution. I'm glad that God in His Word, it's not just an appraisal of how rotten we are, but He gives us a solution as to what we need to do. These men cry out to Elisha. Elisha says, go bring me a new cruise, put salt therein. And he goes to the fountain of the spring and pours it in and pronounces by the word of God that these waters were healed. You say, preacher, can God do that? Well, he was the one that pronounced them cursed. So he and he alone can pronounce them healed. And these waters are healed. What do we learn about in our lives what it takes to have our joy restored, the fruitfulness of our life restored, the intimate fellowship with God that produces the life of Christ in us? Restored. What does it take? Well, notice number one, the supplication that was required. We didn't read the surrounding verses. But I want you to notice something. I don't know if it occurred to you, but look back in verse 17. The Bible's describing these sons of the prophets that are asking Elisha to let, to permit them, to allow them to go and search for Elijah. And it's funny, they fundamentally misunderstood. One of the, one of the things they say is, well, maybe the Spirit of God threw him up in the air and dropped him on some mountain. You know, that's, that's what, how ignorance thinks of how God works. <laughs> and Elisha says, they ain't gonna do no good. You can search every mountain, but God doesn't just pluck people up and toss them haphazardly. God took him to heaven. I know what God did. But they said, no, let us go. And verse 17 says, when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, sin. They sent, therefore, 50 men, notice this, and they sought three days, but found him not. When they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, go not? And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, and the ground barren. Now, it's easy when you read that to focus on the silliness of those sons of the prophets. But can I ask what I think to me is a very obvious question? Why did it take them three days to ask Elisha to do something about the barrenness of their water? The Bible says he tarried there for three days. And that it was only at the end of that, it seems to be when Elisha is getting ready to depart for the verses immediately following our text disclose him leaving that place. And it's like Elisha is putting his backpack on his shoulder. He's getting his walking staff. He's saying his goodbyes. He's paying his bill. He's heading out the door. And they come to him and plead with him and say, Elisha, you must help us. The waters are bare. I don't know. Maybe Elisha was gentleman enough to not say it. But I'd probably looked at him and said, where was you people at two days ago? I've laid around here at the inn at Jericho doing nothing for two days. And you could have come to me at any time, but you refused to do so. I'll say something good and something bad about them. The bad is that, well, let me say it this way. The good is that they came to get help. The bad is that it took them three days to make up their mind to do it. Now, wouldn't you think if these people, and obviously they believed Elisha could help them, or they wouldn't have come to him in the first place, 
So obviously they believed God could do it. So what is it that would make them refuse for three days to come and to seek help? Hey, there's probably children died in that time. There's probably cattle died and and livestock died in that time. There's probably crops that were blasted and destroyed in that time. But they in their pride, in their stubbornness, and their willfulness had to master their own their own pride and and stubbornness before they would come and ask for the help that was needed. They had to be willing to admit it was a barren place. They had to be willing to admit it was a cursed place, and they had to be willing to admit there was something wrong that they couldn't fix. You know what keeps most Christians from getting victory in their life is just pride, too prideful to admit that there's something wrong in the first place. Too prideful to admit there's something wrong in the first place. You won't get help if you don't ask for it. And you've got to be willing to look at your life and to say like they said, hey, the situation of this life is pleasant. God's saved me and He's given me everything that I need. But the water is not and the ground is barren. Something's wrong and we need help to fix it. I'll tell you when things change is when you're willing to look to God and say something's wrong. And I need help to fix it. I see the supplication that was required. They wouldn't have got help if they hadn't asked. But then look at verse number 20. What was the medicine? What was the prescription? He said, bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. Salt's interesting in the Bible. Salt is one of those ingredients and materials that's found over and over again with great spiritual significance. One of the things that's interesting, and I'm not preaching a message about salt. I've done that before. And you you can study all the properties of salt, what it's used for. It it preserves things. It cleanses things. It stings when it's applied, but it's wholesome and healthy uh, when it's applied. I mean, there's a lot of applications you can make. But you're sort of left asking this question, so what is salt a picture of? I mean, when you talk about water, water's a picture of two things in the Bible. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit, and it's a picture of the Word of God. When you look at light in in the Bible, it's a picture of two things. It's a picture of uh, of Christ and His character and, and glory, and it's a picture of the revelation of the Word of God. But you sort of struggle to describe what salt is. What is salt? The Bible describes how that if the salt has lost its savor, it's fit for nothing but to be trodden underfoot. The Bible describes in the Old Testament a salt sacrifice that would be given. And there's times throughout the Bible that salt... So what is salt a picture of? And why do we have such trouble defining it? Well, I think the book of Colossians chapter 4 lets us know. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 4, 6. He says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Here's what Paul says about salt. He says salt is a picture of the grace of God. You know why we have trouble defining what salt is in the Bible? Because sometimes we have trouble defining what grace is in the Bible. Grace being God's unmerited favor, God's riches at Christ's expense. But we understand that it being the benevolence of God, unearned and and, and undeserved and sometimes even unsought for, We sometimes have trouble putting a a label on it because it can manifest in so many different ways. And I began to think about the grace of God in this salt that was applied. You say, preacher, my life's all messed up. I'm miserable. I'm not living for Christ. I, I, I know that I should be. Everything in my life is what it should be except me. I am broken. What do I need? You need grace in your life. You need grace in your life. What kind of grace do you need? Well, you might need grace in its pardon. 
Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'll tell you this, if you're here and lost tonight, the first thing on your list, before, before, if you're making a list of priorities, right above breathe ought to be get saved. It's the most important thing you could possibly do. I will tell you, if your life's broken and you're not saved, it ain't going to take Sherlock Holmes to figure that out. You can look at your life, and if you're not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then of course it will be a broken life. Cursed in its fall, cursed in its foundation, with no hope and with no help. You might need grace in its pardon, or you might need, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you might need grace in its peace. Paul talked about a time in his life when he was struggling with a physical malady, and he had sought the Lord and begged God to take this thing away from him. God refused. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in necessities and persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul says, God gave me a little grace, and it came in the form of an attitude adjustment. Any of y'all ever grow up in homes where you got attitude adjustments? That's a lot of what's wrong in society. They don't know attitudes can be adjusted, but they can. The Bible tells us how they can be. And uh, I grew up in a home where we'd have attitude adjustments. God gave Paul an attitude adjustment, gave him a fresh perspective. Paul was begging, saying, God, take it away. And Paul say, God says to, to, to Paul, says that. That's the thing that I'm getting the most glory out of your life in, Paul. Why would I take that away? That's the reason I can use you, Paul. Why would I take that away? That's the conduit of my strength in your life, Paul. Why would I take that away? My grace is sufficient for thee, Paul. A lot of people have wondered, well, how did that grace express itself? Well, it expressed itself in the peace and the faith that Paul exercised in the Lord when he says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmity. I'm going to quit trying to get out of them and start trying to get out of them what God has in them for me. And I'm instead going to look to see God work through these things. You might need grace in its peace. Just resting in the fact that God, His thoughts towards you are thoughts of peace and He has a plan for your life. Or what you might need is grace in its power. The Bible says this in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Here's what Paul says, grace changes you. It transforms you. It gives you a fresh perspective and it gives you a new purpose in life. In other words, he says that grace is a powerful thing and that where grace is present in the life of the believer, it instructs them and it equips them to transcend their their natural condition and instead to live in the strength of God. I would say that in your life and mine, hey, you may be struggling, your life may be broken, 
because you're lost and need to be saved. It may be broken because you're struggling and you need peace in the Lord. Or it may be broken because you're trying to live in your own strength and energy and you've allowed a sin a place in your life and you've allowed pride a place in your life. You've allowed willfulness a place in your life. And the grace of God needs to be given a preeminence in your life and you need to allow God to teach you and grow you. Say, preacher, what do I need? Everything's how it ought to be except me. Everything in my life is there except me. What's missing? Well, the grace of God is missing. We see this remedy in the supplication that was required and the salt that was applied. But I want you to notice verse 21. I like this. He went forth unto the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there. I want you to notice the source that was targeted. He could have put that salt in anywhere. But he went to a place where there was no upstream. There was only downstream. He went to the source of the spring. He goes and he says, I want this salt getting everywhere. And the only way I can guarantee this is to go to the place where it comes out of the ground and to put this salt in. I have to go to the source of the problem to ensure that the solution will be exhaustive. Because then that salt is going to flow down through every square inch of this water course. You know, in our life, if we want to see God fix what's broken, we have to be willing to go to the source of the problem. A lot of times we want God to patch up a bunch of stuff that's downstream of our problem. We want God to fix the consequences of our bad choices. We want God to shore up our minds against the nervousness and anxiety of the problems that we're facing. But until we're willing to go to the source of the pollution and in grace allow God to do a work there, we don't need to expect that the water is going to be healed. You know what would have happened if he'd gone halfway down through that water source and poured salt in? The bad would have eventually washed out the good. But because he went to the very source of it and because the power of the Word of God, that entire water course was healed unto the day that this was recorded. By the way, you can still go to that place and find there a thriving community. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm saying this, God healed the waters and God healed the waters. And God healed them. God fixed them. They didn't have no more problems like that. I would say that in your life, if you'd say, preacher, the situation's pleasant. I know I got everything I need to be used of God and for God to have victory in my life and for God to get glory out of it. But if I'm being honest, my life isn't that way. Then it's time to stop and look at your life. Do a reassessment. Come to the Lord and say, Lord, I need your help. I need your grace. Don't run from it. Don't try to go downstream of it. Come to the Lord and deal with that matter directly with Him. Let's bow our heads tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to meet the Lord in the altar this evening. There may be some large thing in your life. Or there may be some small thing in your life. There may be some obvious thing in your life. Or there may be some hidden thing in your life. But whatever it is, don't ignore it. Don't dismiss it. Don't disregard it. Don't just hope it'll get better. Instead, why don't you come to the Lord? Go to the source of the problem in your life. And come and let God do a work in your heart this evening. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.